Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across Sheffield from the 31st of May to the 2nd of June. So other podcasters that you'll be able to see include Katie Price, Catherine Ryan, Ramesh Ranganathan and the original Adam Buxton. But there's also a whole host of free fringe events, family shows, surprise acts and after parties that Jane and I haven't yet been invited to. I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. Hello and welcome back to the game podcast from the Times. Today, Nuno Espirito Santo is sacked by Spurs after just four months in charge. Could Antonio Conte be the perfect replacement? We'll also ask if Crystal Palace can dream of a European spot this season. Aston Villa need a response after four straight defeats. Leeds aren't quite themselves and Wrexham goes all Hollywood. This is the game. Hello again. Welcome back to the Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wilsoncroft. Uh, joining me once again today, Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd and Tom Clark, a.k.a. The Crew. Uh, and listen, we've got a load to talk about immediately because about 10 minutes before we've started our podcast recording, the third Premier League managerial casualty is upon us. Nuno Espirito Santo sacked. After just four months in charge by Tottenham Hotspur, I'll read you the statement that has come out of the club. It says the club can today announce that Nuno Espirito Santo and his coaching staff, Ian Cathro, Rui Barbosa and Antonio Diaz have been relieved of their duties. Fabio Paratici, the managing director of football, said, I know how much Nuno and his coaching staff wanted to succeed and I regret we've had to take this decision. Nuno is a true gentleman and will always be welcome here. We should like to thank him and his coaching staff and wish them well for the future a further coaching update will follow in due course i like that just hang the carrot out for the fans and get them all debating as to what that might be and it all goes back to the game this weekend that was dubbed el sacaco it, it in the end was exactly that nuno espirito santos at spurs side beaten three nil by manchester united in north london in what was for the most part a pretty boring game um no shots on target though for tottenham hotspur in that match so they're there, I think deficiencies were very, very evident. Um, Alison, I'll start with you on this. You were at the game. You wrote about it this weekend. You said Nuno looked sad. I bet he's feeling even worse now. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Sometimes it's it's best to just get something over with. I mean, I don't know why he took the job in the first place. He was, depending on how you do your maths and who you decide was truly in the frame, he was either seventh, eighth, ninth or tenth choice to start with. And not only that, he was... They decided they didn't want him in the first place. They sort of went back to him after a whole list of, of more esteemed coaches turned the job down. So he he didn't get a running start at the job. Um, fans were like, "Oh, okay, we've we've had to you know scrape the bottom of the barrel to get somebody in." So the fans weren't exactly enthralled. They didn't think he was a good fit for Spurs because what did they? What evidence did they have? They had his Wolves team. I mean, let's not forget he was sacked from Wolves. I mean, it wasn't like he left Wolves to join a bigger club um, who had to poach him. 
it was a man who was sort of desperate for some work. So the ground, the groundwork, the, the preamble wasn't great to start with. And then you got those three one nil wins on the trot. And that, that, that I think was the moment you knew it was going to go horribly wrong because they, they, they won. They beat Manchester City and still the fans weren't happy. Oh, but how did we win? You know, it wasn't, wasn't very thrilling. It was very perfunctionary, you know, possession based, slow. Nobody looked, nobody shone in those, in those games particularly. It was, it was, it was not thrilling. So then suddenly fast forward very, very quickly indeed to, um, the game against Manchester United. And what struck me in that, well, the obvious thing, first of all, was no one was really talking about Nuno ahead of that game. It was all about Solskjaer, all about would Solskjaer get sacked? How on earth would the players respond to the plight Manchester United were in there, humbling against Liverpool? And it was up, really was up to Spurs as the home team. And the atmosphere was fantastic, actually. There was no sense of it being the uh, El Sakiko, um, both sets of fans were behind their teams, particularly the, the home, the home lot, and it was it was just there. Go at them. Go at a fragile United who, for, you know, any initial setback they could crumble. Uh, Spurs were tentative as a unit. They were tentative individually. I'm a huge fan of Hummin Son. And even when he was, you know, he, he always tries regardless. And he just looked like slightly perplexed whether he was allowed to be creative, allowed to attack. So he was trying to be in three places at once and not looking very happy about it. Um, it turned horribly um, when Lucas Moura was taken off in the 56th minute, I think it was, it was 54. Anyway, it was very early in the second half and everyone started booing because there was a you know, relatively creative, energetic player being removed. And once you get shouts of you don't know what you're doing, then the board sit up and take notice. Significantly afterwards, Hugo Lloris, the captain of Spurs, said everything went wrong in the second half. Well, that to me was him saying, "It's <laughs> let's have a look at our manager because what went wrong? What went wrong was he didn't know how to try and put it right. He was sort of agreeing with the fans, wasn't he, that um, his substitutions were incorrect. Um, so, and, and did I hear you say, Hugh, that it was a boring match? It was thrilling. The goals were fantastic. I really enjoyed um, Manchester United's performance. And that, but that was the problem. That was the problem. The team that was supposed to be in trouble actually looked like they were having a laugh. And to achieve that is just so insulting to to a team like Spurs, I think. So I'm not surprised Nuno's gone. Well, Alison, some of us didn't have the backdrop of the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium to illuminate that game. And yes, even as a Manchester United fan, the goals were great, but um, but it wasn't exactly a Champions League final. That's all I'm, that's all I'm saying, okay? It's all I'm saying, even though it was 3-0. Um, but listen, back back to Nuno. Um, I think you're, you're right. He was never the first choice. It was always going to be a difficult job for him. Um, I, but but who's to blame for this? Because I think Tottenham appointing him in the first place, whether it was Fabio Paratici, whether it was uh, Daniel Levy, um, someone's got to take responsibility for selecting a manager who was so far down the wish list. Gregor, who's to blame? I think it's quite instructive that Paratici was the man who whose uh, words were lended to the, st- the official statement, uh, and there was nothing to be nothing coming from Daniel Levy, and there have been reports that. 
Daniel Levy took some convincing. I mean, where they come from is, you know, that would be interesting to know as well. But it's, you know, I think he's, there was, I read that he, Paratici showed, showed Nuno's Valencia team that, that qualified for the Champions League and they played a very different style of football to, to the, the style he played at Wolves. Far more kind of high pressing front foot football. Um, but clearly that's not materialised at Spurs. So I think Paratici is a pretty wobbly start. I discussed, you know, I mentioned last week his, his signings certainly haven't hit the ground running uh, over the summer after spending a good bit of money. Um, and now the manager, who clearly would have had significant input in, in hiring, has gone within four months. So it's a pretty... I have some sympathy for Nuno. I think he's a good coach. Everything is true that's been said. He's not... It wasn't a good fit. Didn't naturally feel like a good fit from the very start. But there are so many kind of moving parts at, at Spurs that have been for a while. Um, as as Alison said, the time it took seventy two days, I think it was, from uh, to find Mourinho's replacement. Um, you know, Levy coming out saying about free flowing, attacking, entertaining football, kind of restoring the club's DNA. Um, Everyone's looking at that as he's as uh, Nuno walks in the door thinking, hmm. So there was a lot of kind of, as I say, it just seemed kind of doomed from the start, I think. And the fans were so underwhelmed by it. Um, but uh, having said all that, like the team's gone backwards. I mean, you look at all the kind of attacking metrics and, you know, expected goals, goals, <laughs> uh, shots. I think they're, Norwich are the only team. Sometimes they're level in Norwich. Norwich is the only team below them for bottom of the table. So, really, going forward, it's been turgid stuff. All their wins have been by one goal margin, uh, and you can't really pick out Son. Probably the only player who's played pretty well for him. I think Hoiberg here and there, Skip here and there. Apart from that, no one looks like they're playing anywhere near the best. So, you know, as much as everything going around has been difficult for him. The team and the, the evidence is on the pitch, and it's not been, it's not been, not been good enough. So, with all that being said, though, Gregor, they are a couple of points off top six right now. Okay, it might not look like they're going to finish in the top six. They're five points off the top four. The manager's been in charge for ten games, and sometimes you do go backwards before you can go forwards. I mean, how fair is it to get rid of a manager so soon? Because coaching takes time. Yeah, that's that's perfectly valid. I mean, look at. Look at Arteta now. At Arsenal, we were having conversations after the first few games of the season about when he's going to get the sack and now the team are looking rejuvenated. And a lot of that is because they've got the best players on the pitch now. There's just something different about the way the way he arrived and the supporters' attitudes kind of and perception of, of his, his, uh, his appointment from the very start. But yeah, look, if you were to ask me, I would say give him more time. But I can see that it's not a good fit and they want to realise the error of, <laughs> error of their ways and go go somewhere else. You'd like to think that they have they have someone in mind now as well. And the reports are it could be Antonio Conte. That'd be that would be intriguing to see. Tom, what do, what do you think about all of this? Was it right to sack Nuno Espirito Santo now? Yes, probably because I don't think they ever wanted him in the first place. As the guys have already said, he's kind of starting uh, in minus points almost with the fans um, and. The team's gone through a bit of change. Greg has mentioned it on previous shows that the signings aren't that inspiring in terms of the players that they've brought in. There's obviously quite a serious problem with Harry Kane at the moment. Tony Cascarino has written this morning that you know Kane should ask, almost has to be dropped by whoever their new manager is and kind of have some time 
to kind of regain some form and well not form sorry to regain some fitness some sharpness on the training pitch and just take himself out of the spotlight for the moment because he's he's coming under all sorts of criticism and whether he actually wants to be there probably doesn't so that's a massive problem it's interesting speaking to as I quite often do like to hear from fans of the club that we're actually talking about so I've spoken to a few of my friends who are Tottenham fans this morning and what's interesting is that of the four or five I've spoken to, three of them said Graham Potter. The other two said Antonio Conte. And right there, you're talking about two very different options. And to me, that slightly encapsulates the problem Tottenham have had since Mauricio Pochettino left. They went for the big name in Mourinho. They went for the kind of, let's go and win a trophy. We're a massive, massive club. Let's spend some money. Then they go for then they get a bit lost after that and try to work out what they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to be doing and go end up with, as Alison said, their eighth choice. And now they've got another difficult decision to make about where they go and who they are. Because if you go for Conte, you've got to spend money with him. And then if you go for a Graham Potter, you have to give him time, which maybe they don't have. So yes, it was right to, to sack him, but they can't, they can't be dwelling and waiting like they did during the summer there's got to be some kind of plan in place for what they're supposed to be and what they want to do because their options and what the fans want, some fans want very different things to others. One thing that is like Alison would know better than any of us from being at the game, but by the end it looked like the fans were almost in revolt. It looked pretty toxic. And you're just kind of casting your mind back to the worst times in Josie Mourinho's year and thinking it wasn't like that, but that's because fans weren't there. Uh, so <laughs> it probably you know it might have been and I don't know it did, did feel it's, Alison what, what was it like by the end it certainly looked pretty toxic yeah there were there were calls for Levy to go there was fighting broke out between fans that's never a good sign is it but you do wonder what they're fighting over I mean I can't I, can't, I mean physically fighting is <laughs> someone shouting oi no no time to go and someone turns around and says actually I quite like him and then they Come to blows. I don't. I don't know what what they were actually fighting over. But it, it, the mood was. I mean, it wasn't like ridiculously ugly, but it it wasn't great. It really wasn't great. I, I, I you get the impression they just. I really got the impression the fans felt it was their moment to get their way, and if they if they booed loud enough, they might get rid of Nuno, who, as we've all agreed, nobody wanted him in the first place. I just think that they recognise that they missed a golden opportunity. They, you know, they, they sacrificed the development of a hugely exciting group of players with a, an inspirational manager to build the best stadium in the world, and that, that's that's gone. And I think they kind of they mourn that fact personally. I think that's at the heart of most of it. They think there's, you know, and then you've got on top of that who they replaced them with, Mourinho, the attempts to to, to kind of hold on to the coattails of the, the Super League the club just you know instead of the endeavours of the pitch being the most important thing it'll be it's kind of pivoted towards commercialisation of, of, of their football club and I think they probably mourn that fact that's really at the well, heart they, of their, they, their anger they thought they were the new Spurs and in fact they are now the old Spurs um, the Spurs that we know and love finishing 7th or 8th and getting a new manager every two seasons by the look of it I in think, a lovely you know, new home in, in, in a really nice stadium great for the NFL um, but um, <laughs> not great for the Europa Conference League I've got to say so you know you've got to look at it with a bigger picture um, 
I, I, listen, I've talked about the blame, whether it be the director of football, whether it be the, the multiple managers that Tottenham have had of late, and of course, Daniel Levy as well. But I do think you've got to look at the group of players now who've seen managers come and go. Um, and there's a good suggestion that most of them are overrated. I mean, we've seen them play well in the Premier League under Pochettino, most of them, and they've been dire with, without him. Um, no, no puns intended. So... I don't know. What do you think of this group of players and is the blame actually with them? Gregor, you've played, so I'm going to go with you on this. No, there's, there's gaping holes in the team. Absolutely. As you say, there's there's players who are just not reaching the same levels, but that comes back to the whole conversation we had about the, the, them going stale, the group going stale. There was no investment in the squad. Now there has been, and it's, you're not sure how well it's been spent, to be honest. But yeah, as I say, there are holes in the team, I think. At fullback, you could argue centre half, centre half as well, and in centre central midfield, central midfield in particular, like it feels like you've got to play Hoiberg and skip because there's not really anyone else to go alongside Hoiberg in that no one who's defensively uh, kind of disciplined enough. You know, Mourinho and Nuno, neither, neither of them have wanted to play in Dombele for an extended period of time because he feels like a, a bit of a luxury, and so there's just real imbalance there. And as I said before, Kane. Son's the only player, really, I think, who's who can stand up to scrutiny this season. Really, Kane Kane is in a in a big malaise, and they're really just in an awful state, uh, creativity wise. So, yes, there's definitely questions to be asked about the players, absolutely. But that's that's been going on for a long time, and I think part of it's to do with with refreshing the squad, and part of it's to do with some of them just not reaching the same levels anymore. Tom mentioned it a few moments ago, but Alison, what do you think about Tony Cascarino's suggestion in the, in the Times that Harry Kane should should ask to be dropped, take a rest like he did at Celtic in, in 91? Well, I think the whole Harry Kane thing's fascinating. First of all, him not being in great form has a knock-on effect to the team. It's a team that are used to being the Harry Kane team. I mean, they just are. And the fact that A... His body language is bad. His actual football is bad. His decision-making is bad. And he looks miserable. That's going to have an impact on um, everybody, fans, managers, coaching staff, and the players around him. That's weird. I Significantly, this all this um, will he stay, will he go, um, what are the moral rights and wrongs of a gentleman's agreement in football? Why isn't he at Man City? What's going on? This all was something that landed on Nuno's plate. And, um, okay, we can't be absolutely sure what Nuno and Kane spoke about, but Nuno made it clear when he came in, he wasn't going to give Kane any special treatment. He, and he's not, a, you know, arm round the shoulder sort of bloke. The, I mean, he was. He sort of feels like the exact opposite to Pot, how the way Pochettino might have handled it, who's terribly avuncular and has his favourites and would have bent over backwards to try and find a way to make Kane feel happy. I think Nuno just took the view, he's a professional player, I'll ask him to do something, and if he doesn't do something, I'll get cross with him, which clearly wasn't what was required in the circumstances. So there was that element of um, Nuno's job. It's almost like he ignored it, really. That was a puzzle the new manager of Spurs had to solve, and I got the impression Nuno decided to pretend it didn't exist. Um I don't know about Kane asking to not to play. I think that's a difficult thing to do when you've already asked to leave. It's like you're just asking for lots of negative stuff and it just spiral out of control. But I think he needs the right manager in. 
It's very tough. I've reflected on this quite a lot and also from a journalistic point of view. And we were all so obsessed with the Harry Kane saga this summer, weren't we? And I think there's an element of where the club, the Tottenham fans and all the outs- the media were so focused on this part of what was happening at Tottenham and slightly lost sight of the fact that they were completely drifting off the pitch. The signings that they had, they did make weren't that impressive and they had an absolutely shambolic uh, approach to their manager recruitment. It's interesting as well, speaking to some of those um, friends who are Tottenham fans, some of them are now saying, let's cash in. Let's cash in on Harry Kane. And this is this is months on from... There were a lot saying it at the time as well. Well, there were, yeah. But there, I think there was also the slight revelry, wasn't there, in the tough man, Daniel Levy, he's done it again. Ha ha, Man City, you've not got our man. We're brilliant. We've kept Kane. Brilliant win for Tottenham, win for Daniel Levy. And so I, I think this is one of those where rather than... Nuno or the players I'm going to throw uh, Daniel Levy and the Tottenham board and the you know the people who run the club I think it comes down to them because there are t- the twofold things of the Harry Kane saga and the manager saga this summer both of them handled pretty poorly and you have to look beyond the players and beyond Nuno Espirito Santo to, f- to find the blame I think What next for Tottenham Hotspur there Nuno's out the door um, reports today that Antonio Conte, who um, who decided he didn't want to be the Tottenham manager in the summer, uh, could be first in line. There's rumours of the Porto boss, Sergio Conceição, as well, being the next manager for Tottenham Hotspur. What do they need next, Todd? What, what kind of manager? Goodness me. Well, it depends. It depends what they want. If they want a kind of quick fix intensity, then probably throwing a lot of money at Antonio Conte is the best option. I don't necessarily see whether that will guarantee that this time next season, we won't be in a similar position debating where are Tottenham, what are Tottenham. Because actually, when you think about some of the teams that Conte has had in recent years, and he's done the kind of what's becoming the Conte move that imbue them with a sense of intensity, real sense of purpose, be the be the tough guy and win a trophy. I don't know whether he'll be able to do that with the current squad of Tottenham players that he's got it would take a hell of an uplift in form um, and some of them showing an ability that they've not shown so far to do that. So my concern with Conte is that you're also going to have to spend a hell of a lot of money, which I'm not sure Tottenham have necessarily shown they're willing to do of late. Maybe one answer is to sell Harry Kane in January, but you're then at a kind of, we're at Gareth Bale all over again, aren't you? With Conte stood next to five or six new signings and going, hey, here's the new era. And that didn't work out too well for Andre Villas-Boas. So, I mean, you know, it, it's incredibly tough. I, If if I was a Tottenham fan, I, I would rather they went down the Graham Potter um, route of kind of starting again and looking to build a club over a number of seasons, even if that meant some tough times in the coming months until they could maybe change the squad and make some new signings. Because that, to me, makes more sense in modern football when you have to have a more of a long-term plan. You know, we spoke before about clubs like West Ham who now look like they've made great decisions because good incremental decisions make part of a bigger, wider picture. Conte seems like a knee-jerk reaction to previous bad decisions that might have a quick uplift. I don't know whether it'll necessarily be perfect in a year's time. Gregor, what sort of manager do Spurs need next then? My kind of instinct would, would, would be to agree with Tom there about Potter, but look, if they got Conte, you couldn't say that was anything other than an incredible get because he's a winner. It's just, a, you know, two very different approaches 
to how, to how they want to win. <laughs> I think you you can see what Potter what Potter's done with Brighton. The just sort of immediate transformation in the style of play from Chris, after Chris Hutton is pretty remarkable. And I don't think like, every week now you get these top managers are just kind of lauding them. Like Klopp was doing it again <laughs> after their draw at the weekend. Um, he's obviously a you know a hugely talented coach, and I think he would improve improve this team. Uh, Conte would need the money. I'd, I'm just also having this whole conversation thinking that probably neither of them would say yes. So that's the other thing that spurs are in. I don't know, it's slightly kind of delusions of grandeur. If you've not, again, they've got this shiny new home, but as Tom said, not really showing any inclination to spend big money to compete with the, the top teams in the country. And I said, as I said the other week, that's kind of because they're competing against countries. <laughs> uh, they're not on the same level in terms of the finances there. So, or they, they've chosen not to be anyway because their owner Joe Lewis is extremely wealthy, but they've run the run the club on a pretty sound uh, financial platform. So, I just don't. I'm not sure that either of them would come. So that leaves them in another difficult position. That's why they were in this position in the summer. That's why you know there was a huge. There was the same Crystal Palace. There was this huge kind of this lengthy period where everyone was looking on the on the market and thinking who we're going to get, and there weren't many names out there. Alison, would Conte, would Graham Potter, would they both say no to taking over at Tottenham Hotspur? Well, yeah, because they've said no before. I mean, what's <laughs> changed? In what way is it a better job now than it was in the summer? It's ridiculous. Lenny is a better job than Brighton, boss. No, they were both they were both sounded out in the summer and neither went for it. So I don't see why if you are certainly if you're Graham Potter, I don't see why it's suddenly more attractive to leave a club where they love you, where your, you know, your long-term plans are coming to fruition. Um, you're a media darling. I mean, everyone loves Graham Potter and uh, he's doing quite a lot with players that aren't, you know, household names. He's, it's about the system and the philosophy. So everyone loves him. Why would he give that up when it's just coming to fruition? And he's, he's supposed to have said, I don't fancy working for um, Daniel Levy. So I don't see how that's going to work. As for Antonio Conte, he presumably wasn't given assurances that they would spend big in the summer and was told, look, you've got Harry Kane, what more do you want? Uh, and now he can see from his living room, I'm told he's got a very comfy chair. He can see that it's, you know, that's not worked out well. It, are, is Levy really going to promise him loads and loads of dosh in January? And January's not a great market anyway. Who are you going to get? You know, it's, he's going to have to start thinking long-term which as we've all agreed, he doesn't really have the patience for. So I sort of want it to be Conte because I want to know how that happens because I do not see how anyone who said no in the summer can have been wooed in the interim to, for it suddenly to be the job you want to go for. I mean, unless, unless Conte's really angry that United have gone cold on him and he wants to sort of prove that they've made a mistake, I, I don't see what his motivation is. I don't, I don't see why he'd be so desperate to go to a club that don't do the sort of things he wants them to do. We'll know that if, if Antonio Conte becomes the Spurs manager, that there has been a change in that outlook and they're going to spend money. So Yeah, that's yeah, because I agree with you. That's why it'd be interesting. But Yeah. So, but you know, we, we know if Conte gonna, turns up. Buy? Who are you going to buy in January? I, I don't know if you it need to think to be about, January. I don't think you need to think about it in that short term. Like I think you just think we know that Tottenham are going to change the way they operate 
and they're going to back him because they've got Conte as manager. And that would be quite exciting if I was a Spurs fan. Do you think Antonio Conte, do you think Manchester United would be upset if Conte went to Tottenham, Tom, and they missed out on another great name? Because, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer got his 3-0 win. He comes out, trumps in El Sacco, you know. He's the man for the future. Absolutely. Ollie's still there. I mean, firstly, we've got to say, fair play. He changed the tactics. He came up with some sort of plan that worked and got a win. Fair play, Ollie. I'll give you that one. No, I don't think Manchester United would because I think the Solskjaer situation proves in a similar parallel with Tottenham how Manchester United are incredibly cautious about what their next move is after a series of very bad decisions and that ultimately Solskjaer's time in charge has been unpicking those bad decisions, moving on some of the players that didn't work. And actually, I was listening to the guys there and reflecting on a point in Manchester United's time when, by all accounts, Wayne Rooney was on on the move, was ready to were ready to leave Manchester United. Um, David Moyes came in. They decided to persuade Rooney to stay, gave him a massive new contract. And I don't really think Rooney was ever that great again for Manchester United after that. Um, and then there were lots of bad decisions made from then, both on the pitch and off the pitch. I think United are incredibly cautious. I think if they'd wanted Conte, they could have sacked Solskjaer and got Conte quite quickly. I don't think they'll be particularly bothered because I think, as I say, in a similar way to Tottenham are now and might be in a few years' time, United are very, very cautious about what their next move would be. Um, and and t- Tottenham are in the midst of this kind of chaotic back and forth at the moment, aren't they? So we'll see if what if, if Conte works fine but I don't see it working for a long time they could be bothered in a month though imagine they lose the next five games well, they could be but I just don't think that would mean they'll, they, they'd will they suddenly think oh well Antonio Conte the point with Conte is that you have to back him you have to spend a lot of money and he will probably win, potentially win you a trophy potentially as he has done of late but it's not it's not a Jurgen Klopp it's not a Pep Guardiola it's not a long term big cohesive plan and that's what the top clubs are looking for at the moment. Stability, long-term plan, thought-through approach on and off the pitch. That's the ultimate goal. And I, Conte isn't that to me. He might be trophies, he might be exciting, he might be success, but it's short-lived as his experience shows so far. Well, I think if you're Spurs, any trophies and success, no matter how short-lived, would be... Absolutely, uh, but that's what we all said when Mourinho came in, wasn't it? That's what we all said. A lot of people, sure you know, they got, they got, yeah, we did. Come on. Don't be, don't, don't be revisionist now. They got rid of Pochettino, the guy who built them up from, you know, a half decent top outside the top six side to a Champions League final. They're at a point where they could have backed him to rebuild another team. They went, nah, and brought in the ultimate big guy. I'll win you trophies. And it did not work. And there are a lot of people, a lot of Tottenham fans who were like, oh, yeah, do you know what? Fine. Pretty bit sad that old Poch has left, the legend, modern day legend. But do you know what? If we win a trophy, that's great. And, you know, maybe we're at that now, but that squad is pretty poor. That's like, there's no guarantees with Conte. That's all I'm saying. I think sometimes when Conte goes to Inter Milan or he goes to Chelsea, there's some guarantees. There's no guarantees at Tottenham even if you're Antonio Conte. I don't think they're going to finish top four, even with Antonio Conte. So why, you know, why go for a manager who's probably going to be there for two, maximum three seasons and not have a long-term approach when it it looks virtually impossible to to crack the top four? I don't see any way that they can. And I don't think they need Antonio Conte to finish fifth. 
Graham Potter would, I, I think he could get them there, you know, and I don't think he needs all the money that Conte is going to need to get them there either. So, so I, I, I would find it a strange appointment, but I, I understand he's the probably the best manager who's available right now. So again, in that regard, you've almost got to go for him. Just finally on what happened at the weekend, Alisson, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, like I said, you know, they won that game 3-0 Manchester United. It was dubbed El Sacco. Do you think he's out of the woods now? Or do you think the games in midweek against Atalanta in the Champions League and then the City derby at the weekend will tell us more? Well, they'll certainly tell you more. But I I think we've said this before, haven't we? And then it sort of becomes quite funny because it, we're, not, we're not proven correct. We have said that Solskjaer needs to stop this. As soon as it gets really tricky, he pulls it out of the hat and they deliver something amazing. That's how he got the, um, the job permanently was... Everyone was wondering, oh, you know, a bit embarrassed by PSG. And then he goes to Paris and um, he proves that he can make the players work for him. And this is exactly what happened at, um, in, in North London. It, it, was, it, it was really thrilling. I mean, Cavani and Ronaldo together, it's astonishing. This is sexy stuff, guys. It was good. <laughs> and nobody, nobody is, I think, has made enough of the fact that... Uh, what's Conte famous? What's Antonio Conte famous for? He's famous for halftime at Arsenal, changing the back four to a back three for Chelsea, then sticking with it and winning the title. Oh my God. But that's just one tiny little tactical tweak. And that's exactly what. Um, and the title. And the title. And, and, yeah, and then yeah. he, Solskjaer does the same thing. And it's, uh, to me, that seems like he's A, got a sense of humour and doesn't take himself <laughs> too seriously. Because to do that and for it to go wrong, then he's definitely getting sacked. But it actually did work. And it wor- I tell you what, it worked better than I thought it would. It was widely speculated that he would go for a um, wing-back system. And I thought, well, you can't have Aaron Wan-Bissaka as a wing-back. Luke Shaw, maybe. Wan-Bissaka, he's not built for that. But he did okay, actually. And that comes from the manager giving him the confidence to go forward. He's not he's not a fullback that's very good at going forward. But I mean a lot of lot of players can, they just feel they shouldn't, but it worked. And um they the players played for him, but but the key is Solskjaer needs him to do that sort of thing every single time, to give it that sort of energy and commitment and but there was a lot of creativity there. A lot of creativity. And I think for a new system, overall, they slot, each player slotted into it very well indeed. So as long as there's no big embarrassment coming up over the next few weeks, I think he's safe, to be quite honest. There's surely no mileage in that system, though. If you're going to leave Rashford, Greenwood, Sancho, all this kind of pl- these plethora of wingers, highly talented wingers, with nowhere on the pitch to play. But that's the cycle, isn't it? That's the early cycle. As Alison says, we've reached crisis point. You find a solution. You get goals. You get wins. You get some performances there's no embarrassments and then the questions come what now for Solskjaer why isn't Sancho playing poor old Donny van der Beek by the way nothing makes me sadder than Donny van der Beek <laughs> being at Manchester United I mean, he just looks so sad doesn't he just someone give him a cuddle for goodness sake <laughs> and then as you say yeah the, the darling boy Marcus Rashford coming being a super sub but but we're not there yet we'll be there in a few weeks time when they've got a crafty back-to-the-wall 1-0 win against Manchester City with a penalty from Ronaldo. And then come Christmas, they'll be fourth and he will be asking, but 
would another manager be able to get Sancho into the team? But we're not there yet. It only shows to me that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer listens to the game podcast. You remember my quote from a couple of episodes ago. You don't need Conte to play Conte football. That's all I'm saying. And on the point of Conte, <laughs> by the way, uh, Sky Italia are reporting that Antonio Conte is in the final stages for talks with Tottenham Hotspur and he's in London today to meet with the club. And that means because we've used 75% of our time discussing 25% of our topics... <laughs> If there's been no mention of Graham Potter so far in this podcast, uh, you'll know why. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, Listen, loads more for us to discuss on the game podcast. We're talking uh, Palace, Villa and Leeds and more. Stay with us. This weekend, Crystal Palace finally got the result their play has deserved so far this season. After four straight draws in the Premier League, they beat 10-man Manchester City 2-0 at the Etihad Stadium. They are a team that is showing more bravery and more energy under their new boss, Patrick Vieira. The question is, they end up challenging for the top eight, maybe even top six this season, if they can turn some of those draws into wins. Gregor Robertson grimaces immediately, so I'll start with you. <laughs> yeah, I might be stretching it a little bit. Like, you know, it's quite easy to, to forget they've actually won two games because they've had so many last minute, conceded so many last minute equalisers and and uh, you know, they've played very well, but they've, they've kind of, the points and results haven't always followed. But it's so encouraging how well they're playing and how, you know, they kind of marry this pragmatism and that they, they, they can absorb pressure but they're also you know, really targeted pressing and Conor Gallagher like he's he's been outstanding we kind of you, go, you know I was speaking last week I think about Manchester United's passive defending where people close they go they close people down they don't really try and win the ball every time Conor Gallagher closes someone down he goes to win the ball he did it against Arsenal for the uh, for Edwards goal when he broke up the pitch to make it 2-1 and he did it here again um, for the first goal, he just nipped in, and he's a little terrier, absolute all rounder, defensively and you know, crafting, craft in front of goal. He's a bit of a throwback, isn't he? In terms yeah. of modern football, and we talk about: are you a six? Are you an eight? Are you a ten? And the you know, the death of the all-action central midfielder. But he, he's fantastic, he isn't he? Yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> and I think he's got that energy. But it's interesting, isn't it? There's another player that's kind of come up through. I know he's a Chelsea player. And he's the kind of classic lone prodigy. But Swansea, Charlton briefly, West Brom, you know, kind of incremental steps. And now you're suddenly seeing this guy who looks a complete Premier League player and seriously confident as well as well. That's what I love about him. He looks really, really up for it all the time. But Palace as well, they, they're playing for playing out from the back, playing with confidence. And you can see what they're being asked to do. They've also got so many, so many talented attacking, you know, attack-minded players. I, 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 do, I do a little column there on a Saturday called Under the Radar, and I did one. I did Michael Olise uh, on Saturday. He's played like 140 minutes of football. He's once started one game, and he's got two assists and a goal. He's going to be like huge, and he's only just kind of getting bedded in the team. But he came on again last last five minutes or something, broke up the pitch. Uh, and and bleed on the second goal. Should it should have been finished by Zaha, and then it was finished by Gallagher. He's he's going to be a star. Eze still to come back in the team. So much more dynamism and youth and energy at the top end of the pitch, but also with a bit of a bit of grit. So yeah, that's hugely encouraging for for Palace, given the kind of the change the change in approach and philosophy that was that was um, that came in with Vieira um, in the summer, and they've. They, they opened a brand new training ground. You see their training ground during the week. The kind of home for for an academy that's producing really good players like Tyrick Mitchell as well. 
absolutely love watching him play. He's another little terrier of a defender. So really positive times for Palace. I think they've been very, very good this season. I mean, you say they haven't won many games, but they haven't lost many games. They're a very difficult team to beat as well. And yeah, you know, a new manager's come in. It's not perfect yet, but I think it's it's more than green shoots for me. Probably three or four more games that they could have easily won. And a lot of the players that they have brought in, remember, didn't have Premier League experience, including Michael Elise. So it's a learning curve. And that's why I'm saying, you know, they could, they could be top eight, top six. There's no reason to to grimace, Gregor, frankly. Um, but yeah, you, you raise a good point about Michael Lise. Um, Alison, Connor Gallagher in the midfield for Crystal Palace as well. Um, great news for Chelsea. Uh, he continues to impress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I've got a mate around the corner who's a Palace fan who's uh, made me promise not to big up Connor Gallagher because he doesn't want him to leave. So <laughs> he says, oh, he's going to get loads of great press and then they're going to take him back. Um, but they should just, so they should enjoy him while they've got him. I tell you what's absolutely key for Palace this season is the player that's always been key for Palace is Sahar because when he chooses, when he decides, yes, actually, I'm going to go for it, he is unstoppable. He is the reason City fell apart. Well, maybe fell apart too strong, but they, they weren't uh, as composed as normal. That is entirely down to Zahar because he, when he's at it, he's, he's unplayable. He, he makes you make fouls that get you sent off. He, he makes you give away free kicks in dangerous areas. He's well, When you go to a Palace game and he is on it, he is mesmeric. You cannot take your eyes off him. And you're often left thinking, why isn't he like that all the time? You know, he's another player bit like Kane who wanted a big move away and has had to come to terms with the fact that he's probably going to have to stay um, at Palace and that sometimes makes him a bit introverted or a bit moody but you know success breeds success so the more that Palace play attacking football get good results the more he'll be into giving it everything and that will mean they then win more and before you know it you know everyone will be saying oh Wilf should be going to a top four club and it will start again. But it's that is I, I love Conor Gallagher, but I do think when when Wilf decides I'm gonna go for it, there there is no defence that can quite handle him. His interview after the game was quite quite interesting too. He was just he seemed like he was like, We we keep the ball. <laughs> we keep the ball all over the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like this is quite surprising, this is new to me. <laughs> you know, it's like we've got we're given the you know, we're giving all our, our attacking players the license to to do what they do best, and there are there are moments, there are moments you see where you know, Jay coming out with the ball and like, you know, playing playing a really incisive pass through the lines. There's just things that are like, you know, the Palace had had some pretty old school defence, Gary Gale and you know, Dan's people like that, and they were being brilliant for them. They were great at soaking up pressure, winning all the headers. They were warriors, but now they've got players who can play out from the back uh, but as I say it's kind of pragmatic too because there's big swathes of the swathes of the game where they're soaking up pressure um, and only going and pressing kind of in targeted targeted areas I, th- I also think James MacArthur has been brilliant for them he's pillar of consistency and so too is, is Joel Ward a right back you know he's one of the players who there was a big exodus in the summer of, of the old kind of the old guard the experienced older players and he's the one that, that hung around and you can see why he's been he's been superb as well. I do think Crystal Palace typifies something that I've seen at a, quite a few teams this season. We saw it with Brighton at the weekend. Maybe it's something that people learned from Leeds last season. 
a number of teams just, you know, their, their main pattern of play going forward is committing bodies forward. So when we attack, four players sprint forward as fast as possible and attack the penalty area. So, you know, you just see this raft of players coming through and play the player with the ball with these options left and right. And you just think, you know, it doesn't have to be Guardiola football going forward. You just have to put that work rate in in both directions. Palace are doing that fantastically well, Tom. Yeah, definitely. And I think you saw that, as Gregor said, with the second goal, Zaha probably should have finished it. But the fact that, as you say, you then had the supporting bodies arriving meant that he could retransition that play into a different move, take his time and find uh, find Gallagher arriving in the box. It's actually quite similar to me to when uh, Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp finally hit their, the peak of the kind of pressing. I remember doing some kind of analysis where I looked at all their goals. It was around that time when they beat Manchester City and everyone went, oh my God, they've beaten Manchester City. And they scored a lot of their goals very quickly after winning the ball in the opposition's uh, half. It was kind of try and work a, work a shot on goal, a clear shot on goal, try and take your chance very quickly. And some of the goals, you know, it was it was 10 seconds from them winning the ball back to them to them scoring a goal. And as you say, but that comes from not just having one guy pressing, it's pressing as a team. And then also, as you say, committing as a team. It's really refreshing to watch. It makes for a great game. Everyone happy with Eimerick uh, Laporte's red card in this match? Definite red. Happy with it? Gregor, Defenders Union? I don't know. It's a long way from goal Cancelo's quick you know there's quite a few of these similar instances over the weekend weren't there and um, no I'm not happy with it (laughs) 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 I mean it's just the inconsistency I mean I think of all of them Johnny Evans was was the clearest because there was no one around him and he was and the ball was going directly to go and he was you know even when Zaha took the touch although you would argue that Laporte made his touch Different. It affected his touch. His touch wasn't going directly to goal. It was going kind of sideways. And you know, he's as rapid, and he would have. I'm sure he would have got a, got a shot off. But um, I just think when they're that far away from a goal, it's it's uh, it's a little bit harsh. You have to say Palace as well rode, rode a little bit of luck. You know, the the goal as well. Jesus's uh, offside goal that was very marginal. And you need your luck to beat Manchester City. You do. City. You do. Come Vienna on. said that afterwards. He said that afterwards. But I just thought I was really impressed with the way that they mixed up their play like that. You know, they, as I say, they build from the back, they soak up pressure, but at the right times they go and they hound hound the opposition, and they really. They, it really worked. Alison, only three wins in the last seven in all competitions for Manchester City. Do you, is, there, is there more of an issue than being made out about City because they put in so many good performances that we're almost forgetting they're not, you know, they're no, they're no Liverpool right now, as good as they are. Um, there is something not quite clicking at City. Um, Paul Hurst's piece in the game decides to focus on Kevin De Bruyne as uh, just not, it's just not working for him. He got substituted earlier than he normally does. Um, I, it's easy, easy to say after they've a defeat, but I, I do feel De Bruyne this season has looked underpowered. And I mean, he's, he's never been a player where you think, you know, that the joy of him is is his um, lithe, supple work rate. It's his brain. But he's just jaded overall, I feel. And often you you look at City and you think, wow, they did something amazing because they have the best brain in football. And if it's not quite working for him, there is a slight sort of disconnect with them. When they're not, it's not like they've turned rubbish overnight. It's just, I've always felt City need, because of Pep's a perfectionist, I always feel that 
if it's not quite perfection on the pitch, they everybody goes slightly awry and it doesn't look quite so clever anymore. I'm sure they'll be fine, but yeah, it's it was interesting that Paul, who was there, thought, uh, it's not working for Kev at the moment. See, the thing is for me with City, anything but winning the league title isn't fine. When they're fine, they win the league. If they're not winning the league, then things aren't right. But I, I know they've set a very high standard, but you know, you've got Pep Guardiola and the most expensively assembled squad in football. You've got to win titles as far as I'm concerned, but we'll talk City, I'm sure, uh, more on Thursday. Of course, Champions League week this week. Let's move on to a team who is definitely underperforming from what we expect. Aston Villa hammered 4-1 at home by an ever-impressive West Ham United who now sit fourth in the Premier League table. Villa are down in 15th. Four straight defeats for Dean Smith's side. Um, how under pressure do you think Dean Smith is, Tom? Hmm. To me, he shouldn't be. And so the answer should be uh, not very. But I know that uh, some Villa fans are starting to get a bit nervy. I think they've got a couple of games coming up, which you'd look at them being kind of winnable games, dare I say it. They've got Southampton, Brighton in the next few games. So yeah, not winnable games at all because they've got Brighton. I don't know what I'm talking about. And Crystal Palace. <laughs> they've got Crystal Palace and Brighton, the two, two our two favourite teams. So yeah, they've got no chance. No, but it's very difficult, isn't it? And I think a lot has been made of the fact they sold Jack Grealish. I was looking this morning at some of the stats and remembering a very early show in the season where... Uh, I looked at this exact stat of chances created and said that they were markedly down on last season and that it's early days and let's not look too much into it and let's not get too carried away. But I looked at that same stat again and this time last season after 10 games, they were third for chances created with 120 behind Manchester City and Leeds. This season, they are 17th with 78 chances created. I mean, it's only one stat, but when you think about Jack Grealish and what he brought to that team, and in terms of how they all work together as one cohesive unit, um, that to me is quite a striking statistic because they brought in quite a lot of players. Buendia is struggling. I think it's, I think he's a talented player. It's been tough for me to watch him. You know, yesterday he got subbed off, runs straight off the pitch, jumps over the advertising hoarding straight down the tunnel, obviously frustrated. He's got history of that as well at Norwich. Yeah. He can yeah. be a bit moody. He can so be a bit moody, a bit temperamental. The Danny Ings one as well, I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a Villa fan and asking him, is that a case of great player, wrong club, wrong system? Because they, I don't know whether they had something great going with Ollie Watkins in terms of that modern centre forward, running the channels, working incredibly hard and doing work that creates chances for your two wide men and for a creative player. And whether Ings disrupts that slightly because he's more of a kind of goal scorer in a traditional sense, I'm not quite sure. Um, so to go back to your original point, Hugh, I don't think Smith should be... Uh, under threat and be worried yet but yeah there's there's I can understand why there's some murmurings going on because it it it, it feels like he needs some time and I don't know whether you get that in modern football these days. Maybe the players need some time as well. Uh, Emi Buendia, Danny Ings, Leon Bailey, they haven't really set the Premier League alight yet in a Villa shirt and that is something that maybe the fans would have would have hoped for. Um, Alison, do you think it's just, you know, adjusting to life without Grealish or do you think Dean Smith ha has bigger issues? It's, it feels counterintuitive to say you lose one player and it all goes pear-shaped, but it has really, hasn't it? I mean, we, I think we forget because Grealish is now just one of many very um, talented footballers at one club. I think we forget that he was the talented player at Villa and because it was his his boyhood club, he gave it 
absolutely everything every week. And it was all about his energy, his attitude, his um, selflessness, his skill. He made everyone around him feel good about playing for the club. He, you know, he'd set goals up, he'd bring moves together. He'd be, um, you know, he'd win foul after foul after foul. He was annoying for every opposition team, found him irritating. Um, so if Villa were a bit sluggish, he'd inject some pace, get them a free kick, make things, make games turn where they'd become a bit turgid. It all went through him. And so inevitably you are going to suffer when he goes because you can't really buy that. You can't, you can buy, you can spend money, but you can't buy somebody who loves the club and you can't buy somebody who has that connection with the stands and as I said, that unselfishness to make the team play well. And maybe in time they'll get over it. But I think it's um I think it's a big problem because they've just become an ordinary team, to be quite honest. Gregor, what do you think about Villa right now? Are they gonna turn it around? It's obviously Grealish leaving was is has been huge for them. But it's just the fact that, you know, neither Bailey, Ings or Wendy have really hit the ground running yet. Some of the, you know, they've all had their injury problems as well. I have to, have to be fair to say that. And I think uh, Douglas Louise was injured as well at the weekend. Um, there's also, you know, he dropped Tyrone Mings, uh, who's the club captain, and Twan Zabi. So there's, you know, four four good centre-halves there, but they're just letting, letting in far too many goals. Yeah, it just doesn't, you know, when so much play went through one player to kind of spread that through the team, it's not looking like a functional attacking unit. I'm glad he changed the system. I'm glad he went away from having the, the three at the back um, because I don't think that suits the players that they've got, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I know he was trying to fit in everyone. And of course, what do you do with, with Watkins and Ings? He was trying to find a solution there. But I just think the team went a little bit backwards in terms of being comfortable out on the pitch. He's now changed that back. And although they were beaten 4-1 by West Ham, who are, of course, a very good side I think that that is still the future what I would say is there was a sense of the Villa players um, what I would describe as cheating in inverted commas I mean a lot of players looking like they were running back but they weren't looking like they were trying to close players down but they weren't there was a, there was a there was a lack of work rate there I think Dean Smith will address it I think there'll be a much stronger side once that work rate really comes you know far be it from me to say anything disparaging about Premier League players but um but, you, but no, but, but you know, you, you think that extra 5-10% is the difference between a few of those goals being scored. You know, letting Ben Johnson come in on his left foot because Leon Bailey doesn't doesn't go and help Matt target out. So he leaves him one-on-one. He allows that space on the inside. There was one of the goals, I think it was Declan Rice. John McGinn's just, just jogging after Declan Rice. You know, he's jogging after. Who dribbled it across? Ben Rama. You know, instead of really putting the pressure on Ben Rama, who just dribbles, dribbles, dribbles across the box, lays on Declan Rice, who just has a shot in the bottom corner. I think they'll address it. Um, I think they will address I it. I think the goalkeeper could have possibly done better for both both those first two goals as well. Yeah, they still would have lost. There were some brilliant goals at the end from West Ham. They were cutting through them like a knife through hot butter. If we're talking about pressure, I mean, I think I think I said at the start of the season that their, their owners' um, combined wealth would have been made, made them the third richest club in the Premier League. And obviously, Newcastle have since uh, changed hands, so that knocks them down a peg. But absolutely, they've, they're hugely ambitious. 
and they finished 11th last season. So they want to see an improvement on that. So he's under pressure already. Yes, he's got a connection to the club. He got them back in the Premier League. Did really well last season. But this can't go on for much longer. I don't think they'll let it go on for much longer. Finally, red card adjudicator, uh, Esri Concer on uh, Jared Bowen, last man decision. Was it a red? Was Courtney Horse a red as well? Because my word, that forearm smash was given a yellow card. That's so bizarre. When you look at, when you analyse both of those decisions, one one leaps out at you as something that should be overturned or changed and one really doesn't. And they got it the wrong way around. So, yeah, again, the fact that Bowen was not going directly towards goal, the fact that I think Certainly one, possibly two players could have made, could have got back to make a challenge on Bowen. That shouldn't have been. That was a yellow card all day long. And again, it's one of those where the referee's told to go to the screen and it, he's never going to not give it. You know, that's just the way it is. It's the way that, it, that the human mind is wired. <laughs> it's like, you know, all the guys have, have poured over it on TV uh, back in Stockley Park. They clearly think it's, it's going to be a red card. I've got to give a red card. It, 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 <laughs> It, it, it makes you pull your hair out, honestly, because the referee is just... You saw Dean Smith on the sidelines, actually, making quite a a, a kind of clear gesture about um, <laughs> about not having the, the balls, basically. Referees not having the balls on the touchline. <laughs> he was talking with the fourth official, going, they don't have the balls to make to stick by their own decision. <laughs> and uh, he's right. He's right, because he was right in the first place. Courtney Hawes was lucky. Well, what was interesting about that, though, was that in the analysis afterwards, they said the word from Stockley Park is that that the Hawes could have been a red card, that they were looking at it utterly, utterly bizarre, because anyone looking at that, a four-year-old looking at that, would say, <laughs> that's a red card. So I don't, there is no way on earth having looked at it, you can say it isn't, which implies there was a reluctance to have two red cards issued, for instance, that were three seconds apart. And that's nothing in the laws of the game that says you're not allowed to do a red card, then a red card. That's fine. You can. Very strange. I think they really thought one, you know, one was one was 60% a red card, one was 40% a red card. They thought, look, we'll send one of them off because, you know, it's 100% a red card, but not not 200% red cards. You know what I'm saying? So, you know. Yes, but that's very, very wrong. <laughs> also, for some reason, when we're talking about questionable VAR decisions or questionable referee, referee decisions, Dean Smith's kind of scowl and perplexed face is the, is the image that leaps to mind. I think they've been pretty unfortunate this season so far with some of these calls uh, and he certainly, you know, when you think about it, he just does not like it one bit and I can understand why. Let's quickly discuss Leeds United before we end. Um, Leeds winning 2-1 at Norwich this weekend. It's a big win, big three points in terms of their bid for Premier League survival. It was an error-strewn game though um, and I think for many it highlighted two things. One, the obvious the bottom side Norwich are definitely going down. And two, the not so obvious, there's a good chance Leeds United could join them as far as I'm concerned. Tom, do you think Leeds will have enough? Because, and you know, it was two very poor teams. Another tough question, Hugh. Loads of tough questions today. Um, I was surprised, I must say, that's the first, it's the first time I've watched Leeds uh, for a few weeks. And I was surprised how the uh, Kamikaze Bielsa ball looked a little bit disjointed for the first time that I've seen it. It looked a little bit 
bonkers in a bad way rather than in a good way. It wasn't that pretty. Um, previous previous week, we talked about Norwich lacking a bit of intensity and purpose. They had that, but it made it a game that looked a little bit like two teenage school sides running all over the place and losing the ball and giving the ball back to each other over and over and over again uh, until a bit of quality from the Leeds forwards got the goals. I think, I think Leeds will just about be okay. Just um, but it is slightly concerning that that kind of uh, the frenzied nature of their play, which we enjoyed so much last season and, and seemed to work, seemed to, and didn't always work. They got turned over quite a few times, obviously, but doesn't quite seem to be clicking. Yeah, Patrick Bamford being fit and in form is a massive thing for them. Um, if they can get him back leading the line and in form, then I think they'll be okay. Calvin Phillips back from injury as well for me. I mean, he just didn't look like the player we've seen in an England shirt at all. And I know, like I say, I know he's coming back from injury, but um, sloppy with the ball, which is a main part of, of his game. Of course, winning it back. But, um, you know, I think Leeds were surprising. It, it, honestly, I was watching it thinking this could be a championship game, which is surprising given what we saw from Leeds most weekends last season. Gregor, do you just finally on this, do you think Leeds will have enough to stay up? I do, yeah. I think it will... Depend on having Bamford back. Also, Luke Ayling, huge. There are three huge players. Phillips have been missing Bamford and Ayling. There are three massive players for them, um, and they're they they're thin. The squad's thin on the ground. Bielsa likes to have a small squad, but uh, you know, behind their kind of first 13, 14 best players, they're kind of really thin and relying on youth team players a lot as well. So, I think they will have enough, though. Yeah, but they need Bamford back because you know they played Jack Harrison up, um, up top. They played. Uh, Dan James through the middle as well. They kind of they don't really have anything beyond Bamford to, of note up front, and it looked a bit disjointed that way. So, um, but I think they'll have enough. I think they're definitely going to be worse teams in Leeds in the league this season, uh, which is a very special way of looking at it. Leeds United fans, lots to look forward <laughs> to. There will there will definitely be three worse teams than you, um, Alison. It's left to you to sprinkle the stardust on this episode of the Game Podcast. You've been. Well, not not exactly Hollywood. You've been up to Wrexham uh, to see two Hollywood stars, Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds. Um, how was it? Were you blushing? What was it like? Were you, were you, were you starstruck? <laughs> no, I was not. You sound like my sisters. It's the first time my sisters have been interested in anything I've ever done. <laughs> Can we have photos? Oh, is he as handsome <laughs> in real life? Did you touch him? Uh, we were told. We were actually told not to touch. So uh, <laughs> it was really interesting, actually. Um, it's a bizarre thing, but they're in terms of PR, they're probably doing it as well as they can do it. They were. They were. They were the, up for the to the media for what felt like hours and hours and hours. We were we were running out of questions to ask them. I think I resorted to saying how hard have you had to work at not saying the word soccer, which um, you know only because <laughs> everyone had asked every other question. Um, and 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 I don't think Ryan likes me very much because he looked at me and said there are harder things to work at. So. There you go. That was really old, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, he's taking himself very seriously, isn't he? <laughs> if he's saying that. <laughs> yeah. No, but it was fascinating because what have they seen so far? They've seen uh, an away defeat and a home draw, and and yet they talk about reaching the Premier League. So um, we'll see. But what was I think probably what was most bizarre was it's the first time. I mean, I, I think, yeah, I did, I did mention this in my um, piece for the Sunday Times. 
you know, I've been to the Maracana, I've been to the San Siro, I've been to the New Camp, but no one's ever made me cross a road I didn't need to cross so that I wouldn't get in the way of cameras, filming the cameras, filming the Hollywood stars being serenaded by uh, fans in the rain. I, I mean, it's, it's like, it's madness. It is all part of a fly on the wall documentary that I'm sure will be a huge hit because that's the current in thing, isn't it? Let's all watch clubs, what goes on behind the scenes. And you've got football plus Hollywood. Um, so it'll be great. And the thing that could go wrong is their ambition just isn't matched by what happens on the pitch. And so far, they're a very mid-table team in the conference. So whether that actually does make for a great documentary, I don't know. But they were very, very pleasant and prepared to answer all manner of strange questions. Did you get the pictures? Get pictures? Yeah. That your sister's requested. Come on, did you? Oh, well, you I not? did. I did. I did take one from distance, but not when I was with it, creepy. because that would be creepy. <laughs> that would be creepy. That would be really creepy. I mean, it's probably more professional to just say, "Do you mind if I get a quick pic?" Than than you know to take one from a long range zoom camera. But fair enough. Um, <laughs> Alison Rudd up in Wrexham with the superstar. She's a superstar herself. She'll be back on the game podcast very soon. As will all of us. We'll be back Thursday, looking at this week's Champions League football and looking ahead to another big weekend in the Premier League Uh, we will see you then but remember if you enjoyed the podcast rate us leave us a review of course and make sure you're subscribed to the Times and the Sunday Times if you do so today you'll get yourself one month free to just go online search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.